My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. This week's show is part two of something we only do very occasionally at Talking Radical Radio, a two-part episode. Both last week's show and this week's are based on an interview with grassroots journalist Miles Howe. How is an editor and a reporter for the Halifax local of a national cooperative network of grassroots media collectives in different cities called the Media Co-op? And, I should note in the interests of full disclosure, I too am involved with the Media Co-op, in my instance the active working group that is based in Sudbury, Ontario. In the last year, a big focus of Howe's work has been covering the struggle against fracking and against colonization happening in New Brunswick and being led by people from Elsibuktuk First Nation. He spent many months in 2013 living there, talking with people involved in the struggle, and reporting on it. Last week's episode was focused on context, background, and an overview of the struggle, particularly as it occurred in 2013. And this week's episode features the portion of our conversation in which Howe stepped back a bit from the struggle at Elsa Booktuk, but also used that experience as a basis for reflecting on what it means to engage in grassroots journalism or movement journalism, and on how such activist media work relates to social struggles more broadly. I encourage listeners to go to rabble.ca or talkingradical.ca and search for last week's episode, but in order to set the stage for Howe's reflections on being a grassroots journalist, I want to indulge this week in having a little more content than usual in my voice and provide a fairly detailed summary of what he had to say last week. For Howe, a baseline point in understanding the struggle that he has been covering is the fact that it is occurring on unceded Mi'kmaq territory. It is territory covered by treaties, but they were treaties of peace and friendship and never of surrendering title. It is and has always been Mi'kmaq land. Struggle against the assumption by the Canadian state that it owns the land has erupted before in Mi'kmaq territory, though more often with a focus on things like hunting, fishing, and logging. In this instance, the focus is the efforts by a company to engage in a form of geological testing to find hydrocarbon deposits called shale gas, which are extracted by a technique called hydraulic fracturing or fracking. This approach is relatively new and has been subject to a great deal of resistance around the world because of its significant potential to pollute groundwater and air. And indeed, the threat to the water has been a major unifying factor among Mi'kmaq, Akkadian, and other rural poor people near Elsa Buktuk. The resistance to seismic testing in New Brunswick began in 2011 in a neighboring county and became intense enough that the company gave up at that point. The testing resumed in Kent County in the spring of 2013. The first act of this most recent phase of resistance occurred when a truck involved in the testing stopped on the Elsa Booktook Reserve to get some gas, was seized by people opposed to fracking into the violation of sovereignty, and then was later turned over to the RCMP. Arrests followed. Throughout the summer, there were many more acts of resistance and many more arrests, culminating in a major blockade of a road that the company was using to run its tests. The company withdrew temporarily, then returned in late September, and another major blockade of the company's equipment began at that point. 
After a few weeks of standoff, Howe reported that actions by company security personnel provoked a minor confrontation that was then used as the pretext for a massive armed raid by the RCMP on the blockade on October 17th. He talked about the extremely biased mainstream coverage of that raid, with its constant emphasis on damage to a few police cars, but its relative silencing and de-emphasis of the intense levels of violence that the police inflicted on the land defenders, that is, on people. After the blockade was disrupted, the testing proceeded, and then a little later moved to another nearby road, which was also blocked by land defenders until further intervention by the courts and by the police. From early summer onwards, Howe was present through almost all of this. He lived in affected communities, he built relationships with people whose land he was on, he reported on what happened. In today's portion of the interview, we talk not so much about the specific events as about the relationship between grassroots journalism and movements or communities in struggle. I spoke with Howe by Skype to phone from Halifax. So let's step back a little bit from the sort of the general narrative of uh, the, the events uh, that have gone down in the last year. And tell me a bit about uh, what you were doing uh, during all of this, like when you were sort of initially uh, covering the story back last summer and sort of what what was your role in relation to all of this as a as a movement journalist um i'm not i'm not really sure what my role was it was fairly like um i didn't really know what it was at first it kind of became what it was i've covered you know different scenarios where guns have been pointed at me or i've been arrested or you know so it wasn't like a new necessarily a new thing for me to be um, put in the middle of, of harm's way. It kind of seems like that's the price you'll pay if you want to not be a mainstream journalist, but still provide uh, respectable coverage to a movement, perhaps from the inside, perhaps embedded, whatever. I'm not really comfortable with any of those words. I just sort of was there. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, you know, I was staying at the encampment or in somebody's basement or in a tent or, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I was sometimes eating the food that was at the encampment. So, yeah, I guess I broke all the rules of journalism. But in the same sense, like, I didn't see anybody else doing the job that I was doing. So, um, I mean, people kind of, you know, I guess, first of all, people asked me to come down there to check it out. And I guess that was based on, uh, a work reputation that I'd provided quality coverage to um, and had understood other uh, indigenous issues around Nova Scotia prior to this happening. So I, I guess I was known by some people as being um, at least half intelligent to uh, the issues that the larger scale issues rather than just like, oh, there's going to be a bunch of brown skinned people yelling at trucks, uh, you should come on down and check it out. Like, I, I got it. Like, to a degree, I understood what was happening. So... And were you there on an ongoing basis, or were you sort of back and forth between there and Halifax? Or No, I was there from June all through July uh, into mid-August, um, and then returned when the company returned. So I was there almost nonstop. I believe I went home for three days in June or July. I can't remember anymore. But it was basically I was there for almost every arrest that took place and every almost every action that took place. 
And how would you uh, describe the difference between what you do and the way that you do journalism from what uh, the sort of the mainstream professional standards are of how journalism is supposed to happen? I think at this point in our in our society, the mainstream professional standards of journalism are nothing that I want to even come close to. So, I mean, it, you know, those are held up as these sort of like, uh, you know, vanguards or, you know, like the entrance to the club or something like that. And I'm, I'm truly not even interested in that club whatsoever. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, uh, it's positive. I don't think it's really, and, and I, I've thought a lot about this because I've been, you know, beleaguered in, in mainstream media for some reason or another. Like, it's just not, uh, I'm not part of it or I'm, I'm definitely, I've been told that I'm not, you know, part of the club or whatever and that's fine that's totally fine i think the point that that i need to make is that my journalism begins from the notion that we are on unceded territory and that deserves to be aired and that deserves its time and that deserves to be uh digested by anyone who would read what i'm going to write and that's that's not easy for people to uh, you know, necessarily cut up with a fork and knife and, and eat. Like it's, it's very, it's demanding. So, um, and, and with that comes generations of oppression and with that comes, uh, our own position as non-Indigenous people and what we need to be doing to, to remedy this, uh, this 500 year travesty that's gone on. And so those are big things. And I'm not willing to just be like, five people arrested, shale gas company told me that they were burning a tire, that's not right. Like, I just, I don't even give a shit, like, what they're, what they're writing. Go, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it doesn't even, to me, it's like, they're not starting from that point. They're starting from another point. And I don't, you know, we could get into what that point might be. I don't know, because that's not a point that I want to start from. My point is, what I just said, and that's where I will continue to write from. And uh, if that means that I need to be, you know, demonized or, or you know, put under a microscope or called a blogger or whatever, that's fine. I really don't care. Like, it really doesn't matter to me anymore. I think I cared a little bit at some point, just like, oh, I want to be a journalist too. Why don't I get to be a journalist? I really don't care. Like, that's fine. You don't need to call me a journalist then. And... So obviously, one of the, the the huge differences you just named is that difference in starting point, the acknowledging that we're on uh, unceded indigenous land, and it seems to me that there's also there are also differences in the kinds of decisions that uh, that movement journalists make when when we're putting together a story that that we along with the different starting point, there are, are sort of different steps along the way that we take as well. In, in putting a story together, uh, whether that's who we de- deciding who to talk to, whether that's deciding what sources matter and what don't. How would you characterize those kinds of differences that kind of flow from that difference in initial starting point? Well, I mean, by virtue of being there and by virtue of having, you know, somebody like an elder or a, a pipe carrier say, I trust this man with my life, or by virtue of somebody saying, I'm going to adopt him as my son, like things I've never really figured would happen, but then by virtue of that happening, I then, and by virtue of just being around for two months or three months or six months, 
and then like, you know, continuously, you know, filing a story day after day and just being like, yeah, this is, this is what happened in my mind yesterday. And I talked to these people. People begin to trust you. People begin to see themselves reflected in your story. And that's the point too as well is that I don't necessarily think or want, I don't really care like if a pro shale gas guy out in Alberta, uh, you know, gets his undies in a knot because of something I wrote. That's okay. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm not writing for a, for a, a wide strata native audience, but I will be writing for the people in that community. I will be attempting to talk to people in that community, and that's why I'm there. And that's using my positioning within the story to its best advantage. If I'm there day in, day out, if I'm, you know, by virtue of strong recommendations trusted in that community, then I have access to sources that nobody else has. And it would be foolish just as anybody, you know, like anybody covering, let's say, uh, the like Parliament Hill. You want to keep your sources, right? You want to be able to necessarily go back to them. And those are my sources. So the people in Elsa Book, the Micmac Warrior Society, uh, you know, they trust me, or they to a degree. And so, so then those are my sources. Those aren't the journalist sources from the mainstream media because they've been beleaguered so much in mainstream media. There's a reason for that as well. And so, you know, I maybe it's surprising to hear those voices coming out in a mainstream or in a, you know, in any source of uh, media. So that, that's where I was approaching it from. It was more important to me, you know, CBC, sure, you got it covered. You're going to get the RCMP press release. You got it. I don't need to cover it then. But what's happening in the community, I don't see any CBC reporters here. You know what I mean? So if I don't write about that, nobody will. And that was the point. There was an angle that nobody else was covering, and that was the angle I was covering. And I still remain convinced that that's what it was. And I was covering the angle of the people there on the ground day in, day out. And maybe it was disarming, or maybe it was uh, problematic, from because it's not going to be a, a message that's necessarily massaged into like, well, let's go attend the RCMP, you know, like they got something to say, or there's a new survey out saying that a lot of New Brunswickers are like, I don't give a shit, you know, like, I don't really care. I saw what happened. I actually saw it. So for me to then go to the RCMP and, like, rehash what I know to be, um, uh, you know, uh, a, man, uh, a massaged message from them really doesn't interest me. In fact, it interests me far more to disprove what they're saying because I know it to be a lie. So one of the challenges, one of the political challenges, whether you're a solidarity activist or a journalist or someone who embodies both, is um, there are sometimes, it's sometimes politically complicated to relate to communities that you're not a part of. Um, so, and obviously, just from things that I've seen that you've written and from things that you've said today, you've obviously had to navigate some of that, like in terms of some of the conflicts between uh, grassroots people and people with Indian Act uh, positions, for example. How do you make decisions as someone who is in the community, is working in the community, wants to be faithful to the community? How do you relate to the fact that there are, you know, there are 
there's conflict within the community. There are different positions within the community. It's a very interesting question, and I it's definitely something that I've thought long, long, and hard about. And you know, my I guess what I would term my breaking point when it was just like you know all holds all you know all bets are off or whatever like. We are like for sure. We are dealing with. We are coming at it from a from a place of privilege, right? And we are not part of that community. And we will be going home, whereas people around there will be staying there. And so these are all like really, really big, big, really big issues and really big questions and really big responsibilities that you need to take if you're going to be doing this job. Um, to me. The point where I, when I realized like this is not going to be me just being all touchy feely anymore came after the 17th, after that raid. Because to me, what happened was there was a whole lot of suspicion going around that a lot of people knew about it beforehand. And a lot of people stood to profit from it from the Warrior Society, uh, for example, being smashed temporarily by a by a raid, by many arrests, by a demonization, by et cetera, et cetera, banning them with conditions from being there. There were people that were going to step into that power vacuum and those people to me, because there were six men in jail that were, you know, still two are still there. And because I had a hell of a lot of guns pointed at me and it came down to one elder begging uh, people to you know, not fire. It, you know, there's like you know, there's a lot of cops with a lot of guns, and a lot of us were in a distinct crossfire with a target that they wanted to shoot. And so at that point, I realized I want the truth, <laughs> basically, and I want to know who knew about this, and I want to know who stands to profit from this, and I want to know why there weren't more people there that morning. And I want to know if they weren't there on purpose. And if if I come to conclusions or if I come to realizations, I'm going to share those things. Because those six men in jail uh, have potentially been set up, whatever their skin color, and I want to know who knew about it. And that was definitely a split, and that was definitely a moment in my life when I was just like, there are going to be names that are named within the community, and that split is going to be... Uh, revealed. And it's going to create a lot of anger. It's going to create a lot of uh, animosity. And it's going to create animosity within that community. Um, but my, you know, writing allegiances at that point lay with those, with those men in jail because I felt that they had been set up. And whether or not you're going to, you know, you're going to have differences of opinion. Yes, that's all fine and dandy, and those don't need to be necessarily aired if they are inter-community dirty laundry. That's not my place as an outsider to name those things, but when my life is put in jeopardy and when there are the lives of six men that have been radically altered by this, two of whom who may still do time, uh, then I'm going, you know, then, then screw your petty differences and never mind whether this is going to, you know, ruffle some feathers or hurt some feelings, they're, the fact that these men are in jail trumps those, uh, those, you know, those issues of, to me anyway, like uh, blanket solidarity or, or whatever. And I, I don't think necessarily a lot of writers or a lot of non-Indigenous uh, solidarity 
workers would necessarily do that. I don't know. But to me, having been there for for four or five months at that point, it, it felt like um, it felt necessary to do that. So what are you've talked a bit about this already, but um, tell me a bit more about the, the different kinds of reactions you've gotten from from different people, different different groups uh, to the to the work that you've done in Elsa Paktak over the months. I think for the most part, it's been very much respected. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, it's a sentence that I that I used time and again from uh, from the beginning of being there is that I didn't come there to make friends. I didn't go there, you know what I mean? And that's like that's a hard place to be in too because you want to be aligned with a community, but that you're going to be reporting on that you do believe has suffered and you know and and continues to suffer. But in the same sense, and if those if those relationships manifest themselves, then that's great. But I didn't go there in order to write things to be popular. Um, it just sort of kept happening. That that uh, it, it kind of seemed like it was backfiring on the part of the police. That every time that I would be arrested for for being there or for getting wrapped up in something or or whatever, that that more people would begin to pay attention to what I was doing. And that, you know, that's that's hard to, to check your ego at that point. But I tried uh, to my best ability to to not allow kind of, um, oh wow, I'm getting popular or whatever. I keep getting arrested, and people more and more people want to, you know, you know, follow me or whatever. Like social media that way is very dangerous to the ego. It's easy to get narcissistic about what who you are <clears throat> in a place. But I, you know, aside from aside from like trolls or or whatever you would call it, very bitter, angry, you know, threats. Uh, for the most part, it was very much appreciated by um, by indigenous and non-indigenous people alike, I believe. And I don't think it was just appreciated from like you know anti-shale gas activists in New Brunswick. I think it was uh, I think it was appreciated probably on a national scale once it was sort of realized like, where there's this guy that's been there for for the whole thing. And he's telling a bit of a different story than is being, or, a, you know, a more real story, I would say, of the movement or of the, you know, the resistance to shale gas that's been going on because he's been living there the whole time. And uh, I think that it, I, you know, I worked hard at that. And that's, uh, you know, gave, gave a lot of my life in that time to that. And, you know, risked my life, I guess, to do it properly and to the best of my ability. So thinking outside of the, the confines of this specific situation, this specific story, what do you think needs to happen more generally to uh, make it so that more grassroots journalism like this, more movement journalism like this happens in Canada? That's a big question. I mean, it's, uh, it's you got to be motivated by, I mean, it's not money. It's not going to be, um, you know, fame or anything really i guess it's just motivated by to me you know aligning yourself to a philosophy that that looks beyond your own immediate uh perhaps your own immediate place on the planet that that it's your responsibility to simply uh shepherd or steward this place that you're in uh until your time on this place is done and that's your role and to do that properly is to you know live a life 
Um, I don't know if that's a if that's necessarily a philosophy that's really embraced by a lot of journalists or a lot of people, but um, ideally, at my best, that's where I'm operating from. And so, if my skill is you know happens to be, I guess you know one of the things that I've always sort of gone naturally towards is writing. So I had you know and I went to school and I got a master's degree so I can do research and go off on my own and read papers and then I got a camera so I can take pictures. So when those things come together um, as, you know, part of my skill set intertwined with that philosophy, then you sort of gravitate naturally towards uh, sharing those words and, and, and those images with, with a larger audience in order to effectuate that perhaps change in, philosoph in philosophy that you feel needs to happen in order to, you know, live a better life on this planet and, save something better for future generations as well. So if people with those skill sets step forward and, and want to be part of that, then then that's great. Then the Media Corp, for example, is a great place to, to share those skills without a lot of gatekeepers involved uh, towards, towards editing or censoring you. So it's an interesting project in terms of allowing, allowing those voices to come out. And are there... Um, you know, organizational sorts of things that you think could help facilitate more people uh, becoming involved in that work, whether that's in the context of the media co-op or whether it's in more general terms? Um, well, I mean, I, you know, it's kind of like a bridge to a degree because you you need you still need money, obviously, but, I mean, it's a realization maybe you don't need that much or, or whatever. So, so, I mean... The organizational things, I think we're in a, I think the model is sound. You know, I think the, that our model of, of journalism is very sound, uh, at its best. And that what is missing is, uh, participation from people both, you know, from a, from a contribu contributing aspect and also from a financial aspect. Like, there is always, you know, we could always do with more money. What we, you know, what we operate on on a yearly basis, probably what CBC operates on on a daily basis. So we are, you know, certainly hamstrung by by our financial resources. And so, yeah, I mean, sharing of finances at this point, or equipment, or knowledge, or time, those are all the things that need to happen. I don't think that the model itself is uh, is set to fail. I think it's set to succeed personally. And just briefly, tell me a bit more about what that model consists of. Well, I mean, again, it's a, it's, it's a co-op. It's a solidarity co-op. There's three ways to become members. There's contributing members, uh, and that's when you're, when you're involved in writing or you know, doing video or audio or photos. There's uh, sustaining members when you feel that you have some extra money to throw around and that this is a quality product that you want to support. And then there's editing members that are sort of looking after the, the back, uh, you know, the stage area of the, of the play that you're seeing or the backstage area. So those are the three ways to, to become members. There's an annual general meeting. There's a board of directors that you elect. There's an editorial collective at the national media co-op level that tries to maintain relationships between the locals and the national. Uh, they make a magazine six times a year from that content. Um, and then there's websites that you can, you know, literally join up to for free and get posting on in an editorial collective in each 
locale will then review your content um, and then feature it for you if it's of a particular quality. Uh, here in Halifax, we have contributor meetings once a week where people get together, talk about story ideas. Uh, if they don't have any story ideas, there's people with ideas who aren't necessarily writers. Uh, there's all kinds of, you know, events that we encourage people to go cover. And, and uh, you know, actually quite often they're now in the financial position to pay them for their time, which is part of it too. Are you still uh, intending to cover uh, the goings-on in El Cipoctoc further? Uh, most likely. I mean, if nobody kind of, you know, one of the things that probably could have done a lot better was, you know, train up a, a whole school of journalists from the community or from the adjoining communities. So um, if nobody from that community takes up the mantle or whatever you want to call it, like, you know, starts to starts to cover it, then then yeah, I'll probably go back. I think it's a very important issue, and and I am a guest on unceded Micmac territory, which does stretch across Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, uh, into the Gaspé, and down into Maine. And those are that's a that's a place that you know in in my life that I try to to take very seriously, and that comes with responsibilities. And if one of those responsibilities happens to be going and covering issues that affect uh, the territory where I live, then that's what I'll do.